We can all be strong as a bull moose or bear, act in the influence of power and care, or fight for our own republic, lieutenant self or private public. Become an earnest repudiation of modern binaries. Hey everyone, welcome back to Soul Scene. This week we are talking about Theodore Roosevelt, the 26th president of the United States of America, as two non-American citizens because we thought he was a cool person and someone who we can learn a lot about. Obviously, he wasn't perfect, same as all of our people so far, but we're going to be talking about things that we like about his life and lessons we can learn to help populate a beautiful, sustainable, tactile future, which we call the Solocene. Yeah, we had to do it. You know that meme about you had to do it to them. Yeah. We had to do it with Roosevelt because... This is our semester that we're kind of calling our Rushmore, even though it has more than four people. And he's on actual Rushmore. So it's like what was once stone now becomes podcast. Just a reminder for people listening on the podcast apps, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, etc. Please leave a rating and review. And also we're on YouTube. You can watch us there. I think this week we are appearing in beautiful 4 by 3 So really modern mm-hmm. we also have an online store which we fill with zines handmade zines all about the types of things we discuss on the podcast and handmade clothes which you can kind of see behind oisha vests and shorts and dresses and all sorts of womanly wares so go through the link in the description you can check those out buy them we will mail them to you in exchange for money <laughs> <laughs> We'll start by talking about the real Rushmore, which is one of my goals to visit. And then become a part of. Do you think that would add me as a fifth base? I don't think. Honorary non-American? Mm-hmm. There's been a lot of talk over the years about adding a fifth base. And the person who conceived of the idea for Mount Rushmore didn't even want it to be for presidents, but that's the way it went. Obviously, it contains Washington, Jefferson, Lincoln, and our boy, Teddy as we call him, on a personal basis, Roosevelt. And he was the most kind of controversial at the time because construction started in 1927. He died in 1919. So it's kind of recent. And also, I think he might have been chummy with the person who designed it. So we'll take that with uh, with a grain of salt. But he's on there. And I didn't know that it was technically kind of unfinished. Mm-hmm. Like Rushmore was supposed to be detailed from their heads to their waists. But... I guess they ran out of time or something, and so only one of them has a little bit of chest detail, and the rest of them are just faces, which maybe makes it a little bit more iconic. Mm-hmm. Do you know which state Mount Rushmore is in? I don't. Guess. Washington. It's in South Dakota. Where is that? That's, That's where Mount Rushmore is. Okay. Cool. 60 feet tall. Heads. And you told me earlier that it's not actually called Mount... Like, the mountain range is Mount Rushmore. Yeah. But the actual thing itself is called, like, the President's Monument? What's it called? No, I think it was called the Shrine to Democracy. Shrine to Democracy. But because of its, um, I wouldn't say bloody history, but somewhat controversial history where it was basically stolen from the local native tribes who had already kind of esteemed this mountain as a place of great significance, some people kind of nickname it the Shrine of Hypocrisy. So That's good. Yeah, But we're not talking about all the bad stuff today because obviously Roosevelt existed like a century ago and we didn't know him personally and even history books tend to wash over things or maybe 
place the emphasis on the wrong things. So I guess it's important to recognize that it's not a hundred percent celebration of the man's life. Yeah. It's more about cherry picking what was good or what may have been good, or even just what provokes positive thoughts in us to design a utopia. Yeah, National Geographic has a lot of really great articles. I read about the the pros and cons of Roosevelt, mm. mainly focusing on the cons. So yeah. if you are interested in that, I recommend reading it so that you don't go away thinking he's flawless. Same with all of our people, because we're always going to talk about them in a positive light, well, given the nature of the podcast. Next week is going to be pretty flawless. I don't want to hear any <laughs> any uh, any bad word against Harambe. May he rest in peace. So. Roosevelt had a quote from one of his books. That's right. He was a president who wrote several books before he became president. Mm -hmm. The philosopher king, isn't that such a kind of ideal to aspire to? It's what you want in a president, a studious, right. writerly man or woman. Back then, Whoa. back then it was just a man. Um, Women couldn't vote. So this is from the preface to one of his books called The Wilderness Hunter. Most of them were about hunting or there were a couple about history or just like nature books so it was a very broad spectrum of expertise and he also read very broadly which i think is just that in itself is kind of a lesson because we've been talking about renaissance men a little bit on this podcast he seems mildly like a modern renaissance man so the quote says from its very nature the life of the hunter is in most places evanescent and when it has vanished there can be no real substitute in old settled countries I thought this would be a good quote to lead into our discussion of his environmentalism or his conservationist policies, most famously the national parks. Mm -hmm. But what struck me the most is how he approached this topic from such a different perspective than do most present-day environmentalists, which I think we'd associate more with being kind of like vegan and hippie and just having this utmost utmost empathy for nature and feeling connected and all this kind of thing his was a slightly more nuanced maybe view on things mm -hmm. yeah we both studied environmentalism in university in different capacities and this was always a big topic of conversation among the classes talking about hunting versus veganism it's true because as someone who isn't vegetarian, it's like I eat animal products, but then you see people hunting, you see pictures of dead animals, and you get very moved by them. And I think people who have always hunted, they understand the cycle of life and yeah. like the cycle of like what humans eat better than those of us who still choose to eat animal products but have never really connected with them. Yeah, it's a good point. It's... It reminds me a little bit because we grew up in Nova Scotia where there's a big hunting culture. And there's also a fairly, especially in the rural areas, conservative culture. Mm -hmm. And the latter often meant that you were talking to people who were against so-called environmentalist policies and renewable energy and politics that focused on that kind of sustainability. But when you actually spoke to them about the local areas, for instance, they had an intuition for when deer populations were getting too high and how to keep these in balance. And it reminds me of how, let's say, park rangers will talk about forest fires very differently from people who live in cities and never actually go to the wilderness who kind of view it like it's a murder scene or something like that. Yeah, for sure. I think 
we also, as people who are striving to fight climate change, basically, we need to have open minds into the fact that people will always have different perspectives. And just because someone enjoys hunting doesn't mean that they're like a cruel killer who hates the planet. Yeah, It often means the opposite, especially with Roosevelt. This is how he got interested in environmentalism. I like this anecdotal story about his childhood. He was nine. He went to like a fish market or whatever, and there was a seal there for sale. And you'd think a lot of kids, they'd see a dead seal and be like, oh my goodness, I need to save the megafauna. Mm. But he was like, whoa, this is so cool. I need to save the megafauna. Let me buy the head of the seal yeah. and taxidermy it and start my own museum. He didn't have an official museum, but him and his siblings was starting collecting bugs and capturing small creatures in the woods and taxidermying them just in their home. I'm hoping our kids don't do that. That'd be kind of creepy. I'd be a little concerned, but mm. he, through this way of valuing them in like a different way, but still in like an innately, not that their value is like for selling, like he wasn't trying to sell these things in taxidermy. He's like, these yeah. are innately valuable. I guess that's that's the the takeaway that environmentalism can wear many different faces. Mm-hmm. There was another anecdote about um, he was hunting and there was a bear that was tied up or injured or something, and the people who was with were being kind of gleeful at it and were kind of fighting over who got to shoot it. Mm-hmm. But he basically considered it kind of a dishonorable hunting, mm-hmm. and that the only reason they should shoot it was to kind of put it out of its misery. There's a lot of mythology about various presidents like that. For instance, from that story is where we get the teddy bear. Mm-hmm. How phenomenal is that? And that's another bucket list item of mine. To have a small, soft thing named after me. The Aaron Armadillo. Something like that. Yeah. The other thing from that quote that I read that I think is so relevant to designing a utopia is the second half of it. He says, when it has vanished, it being the life of the hunter, as he said, there can be no real substitutes in old settled countries. So this is kind of speaking to what is lost when we perhaps industrialize and over-domesticize, maybe. And it's almost uh, like a eulogy. Mm. Last week, we talked about Ernest Hemingway and the way that increasing bureaucracy has taken away a lot lot of the romance and possibilities of travel in life. And I think this is similarly talking about how infrastructure and maybe urbanization takes away a lot of the wilderness in all its meanings. Yeah, and as we remove the people who are intimately connected with nature, be it the hunters or people who are in rural places as people move to urban communities, we lose the understanding, like the personal understanding of nature because we as city dwellers can be like, well, there's still deer, there's still bears, but people who are intimately connected with it can see how the whole food chain is slowly being depleted. Yeah. And they can catch it way sooner than we can because we only are going to catch it when we notice that there's no bears left. Yeah. But someone who knows the land and perhaps knows like the the migration patterns of the fish are being disturbed, therefore everything in the food chain is being disturbed, they could catch it much sooner than we could. Yeah, that's also that was another point about his policy is that I think he's a great case study for how one's 
environmentalism is born out of one's personal experience because he spent decades basically as a rancher and hunter mm-hmm. and therefore personally surrounded by wilderness whereas you can have environmentalists in cities many mm-hmm. of them exist but their appreciation for nature is much more theoretical like let's say for instance people who are learned regarding climate change and biodiversity loss and uh, land use and waste and things like this they know how ecosystems are disrupted and they might know the specifics of greenhouse gases and kind of various chemical cycles in nature but it's yeah more theoretical rather than being a kind of individual personal connection and also the less accessible we make wilderness the less of those people we have Mm -hmm. so it's kind of a domino effect a little bit yeah certainly he as you said he was a rancher and he was one of like the first people to notice that overgrazing was bad Mm. and that didn't come from him like measuring the soil chemistry he just saw it and then he was able to influence policy when he came to a position of power and i feel like increasingly the people who are in positions of power they're just they live their lives isolated even from community and let alone from the environment that's the worst thing and that's also why i kind of highlighted his writing Mm -hmm. like we were talking seriously that it's good to have leaders who are diverse minds Mm -hmm. and have diverse experiences yeah before well they were partially contemporary but john muir was born before roosevelt and he was kind of the father of national parks he helped found the the first national park which was yellowstone and he actually lived in yosemite for like 10 years or something before it was officially designated a national park and he was basically just like a man who wandered through the american wilderness he was born in the uk so he just like came here and was like whoa i want to see yeah he well north america yeah came to us yeah he came to the united states and he was just like i want to see yosemite he went to see it all of these things ensued. He was like lived there and advised artists, photographers, politicians on how to preserve the land. And he was never officially studying it or anything. And a lot of people would say, why would we listen to you? Like you're not a scientist. But he was a naturalist, which is just like he understood how things worked by observation. And I feel like we increasingly don't trust our own senses when it comes to gathering information. Because he, for example, observed that glacial movement probably carved out the canyons in Yosemite mm-hmm. before that was actually proven. And people were like, haha, like that's, that's fake. You just like imagine that. But then obviously now we know that, that was actually how it is. And yeah. both John Muir and Roosevelt, who eventually became friends, they both had this like trust in their observations. Like neither of them were scientists, but they were able to just observe things and people would kind of trust them for their observations and I feel like we need to this is a Solacine lesson of perhaps not systematizing everything yeah it's this gray area where it's good to have some gut feeling and some respect for one's own intuition and certainly a honing of it Mm -hmm. but also that today is entirely associated with being anti-intellectual or just contrarian in the era of where's your peer-reviewed study kind of Mm -hmm. thing so it's difficult because the way that we construct our 
realities used to be almost entirely anecdotal. Mm-hmm. And I think we were all the happier for it. Whereas today we are fact-checking everything on Google and maybe there's a happy medium to be struck. Maybe the new intuition for should be where to trust one's intuition and where to mm-hmm. rely on data, I'd say. Yeah, exactly. It's hard because I'm a person who definitely says you need you can't just say something. But I always remember one time in university I put something in a essay that I just anecdotally thought was like universally true. And then what the was it? it was, scenes don't work. <laughs> No, it was that sometimes like that your brain can't distinguish between imagined and real experiences all the time. Yeah. So like you can watch a movie and feel fully sad. You can have a dream and feel those things like mm-hmm. authentically in your body. And the professor's like, that's not true. I was like, but that just feels like it feels very true. Everyone you talk to, it's like the sadness you feel when watching a movie is pretty much indistinguishable from the sadness you feel when you see something actually sad in real life. That's why you're still not in academia. Yeah, I know. And also, <laughs> the extent of your kind of colloquial language that you would use in said essays. <laughs> it's true. And one other thing I wanted to mention about John Muir and Roosevelt, I'm just using them as parallels because they're really similar, but obviously John Muir was literally living in the woods with the tin cup, Dionysus style, mm-hmm. and then Roosevelt was like in office as president is that they both valued nature for its intrinsic value not for its economic value they're both very spiritual about it and they just were like this is beautiful this is god presenting himself to us that's why i related to when i was reading about the things roosevelt said and what he wrote regarding nature i'm not really much of a hunter but he had i wouldn't call it strictly an aesthetic appreciation for it but it wasn't the kind of cold scientific appreciation that seems to be dominant in environmentalism today it was and it also wasn't kind of as we said bleeding heart veganism like there was this almost poetic passion for it as yeah. the 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 beating heart and I, it is almost touching even though i'm not american the way he talks about the land as the soul of the nation and the self and the connection between all these things and i, I guess this is probably true in the Solocene future, as well as for the USA and Canada, which are both lands of immigrants. Maybe not having those centuries of connection to the people means that the relationship to the literal land is a little bit different or more special mm-hmm. than in, say, a lot of European countries. Yeah, for sure. So even the architecture and like the built environment, we don't have any exactly. connection to, but the nature itself you can really learn from. Mm-hmm. And what I was getting at is that both of these people and a lot of environmentalists, perhaps because of their belief, like because of their quantifying like value of nature as like something just intrinsically valuable, you assume everyone else has that. But both of these men were really good at when they were talking to certain people using their language. And I think often that can be confused with having a colonial view of nature as like just something that we take from. But it's like, just because you use that language with certain people to get them to understand doesn't mean that you see nature as yeah just a resource. But you can sometimes use that language to be like, this is the ecosystem goods and services value, which is like something that people use to value it for its cultural 
it's spiritual, it's economic, like all of these things. And then they put like a monetary value on it basically. Mm-hmm. And just because you use those tools doesn't mean that you believe it. And I think we need to develop in ourselves a nuanced way of communicating about environmentalism. And I feel like Roosevelt did this really well, that he was able to communicate these things to different types of people to get them to make change. Having a strong belief in one's own convictions and really identifying with the cause. That's what I was kind of guessing. He had, mm-hmm. he identified with nature as this is my soul, this is the soul of my nation, so we should kind of protect it. Mm-hmm. And it also strikes me that if he was around today, I don't doubt that he would be very similar, but it, it takes a strong mind to kind of resist culture wars and the mass media, especially in America, where it's literally a political binary, putting you into one thing based on, say, how you were raised, what your hobbies are. So like what I was kind of getting at earlier, it seems that um, if you said of someone today, oh, he's a rancher, been so for decades and loves to hunt and has a taxidermic seal and all that kind of thing, you would think conservative. Yeah. But he was progressive. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think this is necessarily a laudable thing because I don't think that culture war mass media box was such a strong pressure in that day but i think it's something to note for the solar scene that just because you like avocado toast doesn't make you politically one way or the other or just because you like hunting or um dirt biking or whatever it may be you know there's there's a real breadth of these things yeah for sure there definitely used to be more distinction between like your literal hobbies and your political values yeah it's this whole ideological poison today that is yeah poison Mm mm-hmm I was listening to this interview with a vegan YouTuber who was debating a cattle rancher in the UK. And she was like, he was very defensive. He assumed I hated him. And she was like, I just, I have no dislike for ethical farming. It's like, it's what the reason she's a vegan is because she hates factory farming and the mistreatment of animals and the the really terrible ecological impact of those industries but then the person just went into it assuming she hated him and she was like no like my whole family's farmers i really respect them personally i choose to do this to try and make a statement about the industry and you would think that i think traditionally the sustainable farmers like people who do it in an ethical and sustainable manner would be on the side of the vegans but now because there's this this binary that we're kind of fed like this narrative i suppose he feels like he can't he can't be both he has to either be like super conservative and like anti-vegan or you have to be just eating leaves yeah it's that kind of defensiveness that really it makes me not want to engage at all in politics today because Mm -hmm. uh it's very hostile if not always openly and also nobody ever goes into conversations with any kind of possibility that I might change my mind. Stubbornness is kind of like a, a trait that people esteem. You know, they they prize themselves on how stubborn they are and how much whatever happens in this conversation, I know I'm not going to change my mind, which is kind of like defeats the point of having any kind of conversation at all. Yeah, I think it's really important to assess your perspective on stubbornness because I remember I once said to you, no, I'm just stubborn. And you were like, what does that mean? And then I thought about it for like two minutes and I was like, that doesn't mean anything. Well, we were we were kind of praising Roosevelt for being 
strong in his convictions, mm-hmm. but that's different from just being close-minded, which I think a lot of people yeah. praise themselves for being now. Exactly. The villain of the week for this week. Do, 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 do. I like how jawsy that little uh, yeah. jingle is getting. So just as each week we choose a face to go on our Rushmore, we also choose another face to go on our evil Rushmore, <laughs> our villain of the week. And for this episode, it was rather obvious it was the person who shot Roosevelt in the chest. <laughs> His name was John Schrenk. He attempted to kill Roosevelt in 1912 when Roosevelt was 54 and um, it hit his chest. It passed through 50-page speech, which was about how the progressive cause is greater than any individual, which again is just one of those little pieces of kind of American mythology that I adore, even if it's not true. Yeah, it's so hope, funny. You know, it's it's nice to, to think that the man was possibly insane, so I guess we should cut him a little bit of slack. Roosevelt delivered his speech anyway and also was kind of like uh when the guy was getting accosted basically said no don't rough him up or don't lynch him Mm -hmm. or anything we're just going to try him uh regularly and i think this is a relevant story even if it's falsified a little bit yeah Um, it's very christ-like let he who has not sinned cast the first stone just because it's it shows the importance of having a strong figurehead Mm mm-hmm even in a democracy, or maybe especially in a democracy, because like when you have a king or queen, they are kind of naturally born significant, whatever your views on that, that's the case. It's mm-hmm. bestowed on them at birth. But with a democracy, it's the person that we, in theory, we all choose this person to represent us. So you want this person to be maybe not 80. You know what I mean? And I don't think they have to be some bastion of of uh, physical strength and masculinity but I do think mm-hmm. that then it's better when there is a a vigor to it yeah I agree because it's not like he was that young like he was 54 54 but it was like although we should say he was the, the youngest president ever that's true and still is but I think there's something to having a mildly young leader yeah, because mean, they're going to be more connected with the general population and yeah they just represent a bit more of like a you look at them and you think, yeah, he's going to get it done for me or she. Yeah. But I mean, young, old, male, female, It's I think it's a little bit more just about the spirit within. Yeah. I mean, that story, when I read that, because he, like, the bullet was in him. Yeah, but he for the rest of his life. Yeah, for the rest of his life. But he's like, if there's not blood coming out of my mouth, it hasn't reached my lungs. But I'm like, how much pain must you be in? That's what we were saying about the having an experienced person rather than someone mm-hmm. who's only been raised around politics. Yeah, because if the president was shot now, even if he was in the shoulder, he'd probably go to the hospital. But no, Roosevelt was like... That sounds so kind of like gory days. Well, if yeah. the president was shot in the chest now, he'd be... He'd cut yeah. it off in an ambulance. <laughs> like, yeah, he probably should have been. <laughs> it's just so funny, but like... No, president now could survive that. Yeah. But that, So there's the Roosevelt side of it, and there's also the Shrank side from which I think we can learn lessons, which is... It's significant for how we interact with things we don't like, especially politically. I know he was, you know, he might have been mentally addled or whatever the case may be, but we can kind of tone it down and say, if you don't like what's happening politically, it can feel like today we are out of options and you can either post memes about it. You're kind of caught between memes and violence. Mm-hmm. That seems like the options that are presented to us today. But there are 
ways to express your displeasure with things while still being a positive force. Mm -hmm. And I think we can get into that next when Roosevelt founded a political party. Exactly. So he lost the nomination with the Republican Party and he decided to, instead of just be like, well, go into hiding, whatever, he started his own political party, which is like, we now, the thought of starting a political party is basically out of the question. Yeah, I'm going to put the badge on screen as well right now because it's a a nice badge. Yeah, so he started a, a... He started his own party with his own platform, his own group of people, and made a really cool badge, which, like, if that's not incentive to start a political party, I don't know what is, designing a badge. And I just think that's such a great example of the people having an initiative. Because part of the thing that made us found Seed was basically the revelation of, like, corporations are made of people. Political parties are made of people. They're not just, like, their own things. But this is actually something that he opposed was like the vision of corporations and stuff as like their own entities because that makes them seem like they're just these evil forces sent by like the devil, basically. It's the exact same thing with politics, though, where people view them as just institutions. Mm -hmm. And that's how you have people who've been voting for decades with loyalty to a party. It's like Mm -hmm. that doesn't make any sense. You you know, if you have loyalty to anything in politics, it should be to politicians. Mm -hmm. Uh, Even then, that's probably not a good idea you should be loyal to ideas yeah and if there's nothing you like then do something about it because we're talking about how in canada at least we have kind of we'll say five parties Mm -hmm. really three and a half you go to vote and you're like well i have to vote for one of the two big ones otherwise my vote won't count exactly but think about how many people are doing that a lot of people even people who are getting into politics think this of like i have to join one of the big two parties otherwise my time in office won't count Mm -hmm. But it's like these are all individual people who, if we can change their minds, if we can change our own minds, maybe the NDP could win or I maybe think, the Quebecois yeah. separatist party could win. I think in the internet era, like it's more feasible than it has been for like the last 80 years or so. And we should mention what happened with Roosevelt's party, which is precisely what people fear about a third party in America, which mm-hmm. is that it split the votes and the Democrats ended up winning handily. Yeah. Although we should also mention it's the it was the first and only time that a third party in America has received a higher percentage of votes than one of the big two. Mm-hmm. So it got like twenty seven percent of the votes, uh, which was more than the Republican Party that he had left at the time. Mm-hmm. So I, I still think it's a success in some ways, and I just think you need to kind of eat that failure and persevere with it over time. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the only way that you can kind of properly change things, I guess. I'm also going to read from platform for that party a quote where it says to dissolve the unholy alliance between corrupt business and corrupt politics is the first task of the statesmanship of the day which i just think is such a rousing line and maybe more relevant now over a hundred years after it's uh Mm -hmm. it's writing which is kind of sad but yeah it's just so sad how bought out everything seems to be like even the Within our lifetimes, I think, like the climate conferences and stuff, originally they were like, Yeah, like we're gonna we're gonna do something about this issue. And then now it's like, well, we have Shell speaking, we have like like all of the speakers at the conferences are just like these companies that have bought their places there, it's sponsored by Pepsi. It's like mm. cool, Pepsi can sponsor it, but they're still the biggest polluter in the world. I had a few more lessons similar to this 
which we can take for the solo scene, one of them is to be an idealist, which it yes. kind of strikes me that Roosevelt was. And what this means is believe in politics, even if it seems irrational to do so. And I think it is mm-hmm. um, irrational to do so today. But you should kind of place your belief in things that help you. What this means is that if you go around being apathetic about politics and saying this is pointless, it's too corrupt for anyone to make a change, um, I'm not even going to vote or care or pay attention, that's certainly going to be the case. Mm-hmm. But it's much more helpful to your own mental health and also to society if you believe, even foolishly, that politics is this uh, pure bastion of democracy and citizens coming together to govern in a way which is representative which sounds almost foolishly naive but i think that's how people i think that's the most effective way of living even if it's irrational and kind of similar to this in the solar scene governments and democracies should actually get things done and should be good (laughs) i agree even when he initially joined politics, all of his friends were like, no, it's useless, da, 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 do something else, like you'll actually make a change. But I think his faith in the fact that it could be good, that it could be actually democratic, mm-hmm. is what made it so. But then over the years, over the last hundred years, we've slowly started to just believe that it is impossible and made it increasingly hard to reform. Yeah. I wanted to close just by talking about the connection between empathy to environment and empathy to people. Because Roosevelt, we've already talked about, had a lot of conservationist policies and leanings and also was a big proponent for things like welfare, which today we associate with being very uh, left-wing and progressive. And I don't want to ascribe the word empathy to him exactly because, as we're saying, we don't know him and there are a lot of nuances to why people do things, especially in politics. Mm -hmm. But it kind of sparked this in my mind about, is there a connection between those two types of empathy? And if so, how can we foster it more in the solo scene? Yeah, I was thinking a lot about this. I had like two or three pages of notes about this and didn't even broach it on the episode because it's so large, but I'll try and simplify my thoughts. I think right now there can be there exists people who just care about nature. They're very misanthropic. They think that people, well, they they know that people are the reason that the climate is the way it is and therefore think that just removing people from the land is like the solution. And this is slightly reflected in the founding of the national parks and the national forests. They kicked a lot of people off the land yeah. because, I mean, for millennia, like humans had lived in North America and had been stewarding the land. They had been intentionally burning they had been keeping populations of animals in check but then people come in they're like for these to be preserved we need to get the people off of it Malthusian. yeah but i think if we can just look at human history in open-minded and not just like looking at a very specific branch of human history we can see how humans and nature co- coexisting is the solution. Yeah, I think a, this is just coming to me now, but I think a great way of making oneself more empathetic is to learn more about people. And this I agree. sounds really dumb, and it doesn't just mean spending time with people, although that can often help as well, but for instance, like 
I've loved every single biography that I've read, mm-hmm. which, and I never thought that I would like them. Mm-hmm. Like almost always before, I think I'm like, oh, this is going to be a drag. But then I like reading it and I come away with more of an appreciation for the human spirit and its different manifestations, mm-hmm. which is part of the reason that I'm really enjoying this semester so much. Because mm-hmm. it gave me an excuse to read about Sappho and Hemingway and Roosevelt. And otherwise, you probably wouldn't have. And you kind of come away from learning about these impressive people and think, yeah, we're, we're, we're okay as a species. Mm-hmm. You know, we're all right. Yeah, but and I think often even within liberal parties, we can think, okay, we have our conservation sector and we have our welfare sector and our education sector. But it's like the solution is seeing how those are all interconnected, how degradation of environment is putting people into poverty and how poor education is making people hurt the environment. And just seeing the whole... I guess it's kind of like the Gaia hypothesis that the Seeing Earth is the one. for the trees. Yeah, that the Earth is one organism, and therefore we are fleas on the back of the organism. So seeing ourselves as fleas on the organism is a bad thing. But seeing ourselves as a part of it yeah. is a good thing. That's why I kind of drew this all food web, but we're not eating each other with like some people and some clouds and trees and mammals with arrows between us. Mm-hmm. And I wrote, it's too easy today to convince ourselves it's healthy to live in isolation. For instance, you go to the grocery store, even if you're a meat eater, it's just it's just like buying beans. You know what I mean? It's just there. Mm-hmm. There's no animal. If you went to a, to a deli or a butcher, maybe it's a little bit different. But mm-hmm. you don't see anything in its proper kind of original connectedness. Yeah, this is an anecdote, but... People used to think, you know, asbestos? Yeah. So it's like the stuff that's in insulation, it's fireproof. I just learned this. I just assumed it was a plant or like some kind of fibrous tree or something. But apparently it's mined in mines, which is just so wild to me. But it's like historically people thought it came off of fireproof lizards and stuff. But it's just like for thousands of years, humans were using this material, but we thought it came off of mystical, magical little creatures. Because we couldn't conceptualize it as actually a part of yeah. so the environment. Yeah, so it can get more of a sense process and mm-hmm. material. Like, I think, for instance, the working with wood would make you a more empathetic person. Right. Especially if you were there from the very beginning of the process. Mm-hmm. There's something about seeing the transformation of things that maybe embeds a kind of universal love in you. Or maybe we're just talking hokum which is maybe the first time I said that word on the podcast, but I think it's welcome. I think it's kind of a solo-seen word. Hokum? Hokum pokum. Thumbnail. (laughs) Thank you all for listening. We hope you learned something about Theodore Teddy Roosevelt, and we'll see you next week for our most exciting episode about the one, the only, Rob.